what I proposed was at age 25, you inherit the equivalent of 60% of average wealth. You know, if average wealth is $250,000 per adult or $300,000 per adult, you will get maybe 150 or 180. So folks, that was Thomas Piketty, the French economist whose book, Capital in the 21st Century, changed the way so many of us saw capitalism and the world. And he's got a pitch now for challenging the scourge of inequality a massive inheritance from the government. Felicia talked about all of that and more with Tomas in Paris recently. Questions including. Is neoliberalism ending or just plateauing? What kind of taxation system can help reverse economic inequality? Can increasing public investment in education raise productivity? And what does the global north owe to the global south? I'm Felicia Wong, president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. And I'm Michael Tomaski, editor of The New Republic. And this is How to Save a Country, our podcast about the ideas and the people behind a progressive vision for America. It is really hard to overstate Tomas Piketty's impact on the field of economics and, frankly, on all of politics. His 2013 book, Capital in the 21st Century, was that rarity in academic publishing. It was an overnight sensation. It sold millions of copies. It was a New York Times bestseller for weeks and weeks. It's actually the most successful academic book ever from Harvard University Press. This isn't on my script, Felicia, but I'm going to throw this in here with your permission. This, this was in part because of the magnificent translation by my good friend, Art Goldhammer, whose name I just want to sneak in here. It struck at just the right moment after the financial crisis, after Occupy Wall Street came and died down. It hit the zeitgeist beautifully. I agree with that. Piketty said, hey, look, inequality is not an accident. It's not like the weather. It actually is being driven by the way capitalism is functioning. So then he says, you know what we need? We need state intervention. We need government action. And we need that to be very, very, very big. And so that is when he proposes a policy that seems like it's common sense now. But at the time, the idea of a wealth tax of 2% or more, that felt totally radical. It did. And um, the other thing about his book is that it is just chock full of hard data and evidence. And that's something that we have talked about all the time on this show, the switch in the economics profession over the last 20 years or so from uh, a a view of the world that uh, was based around more theoretical modeling to a way of looking at the world that was based more on hard data and evidence. Piketty for Capital in the 21st Century got decades worth of uh, U.S. tax returns, and that was the basis of his analysis, but uh, actually yeah. centuries Cent- worth. Yes, Some of the data right, went back right. to the 18th century, certainly the French data. Yeah, exactly. So it's a point we've driven home, I think, uh, to listeners of this show very frequently. And also not just the existence of data, but how economics becomes more worker oriented, more progressive when it is informed by data. Right. And the other thing about Piketty, didn't just stop with the publication of Capital in the 21st Century. He's published a few books since then. And Maybe even more importantly, he's gone on to work with other economists like Gabe Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez at Berkeley, and they have compiled this state-of-the-art, always up-to-date data set on world inequality. It's really used a tremendous amount by people in our field now. It's a big deal. 
It's a huge deal. And uh, they've completely flipped the conventional wisdom on how most people think about inequality. Neoliberal economics said, and conservative economists said, that inequality isn't something we should bother to address, that inequality is just an acceptable price of, of growth, of, of economic freedom and growth. And Piketty particularly, but Saez and, and Zuckman as well, and others, have contributed to a body of work that has said no. That's totally wrong. You can work to reduce inequality while still having and even improving growth. That is so right. And that's why, Michael, I was pretty excited to get this invitation to go to Paris a few weeks ago. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. So Tomas and I were actually on a panel with someone else you might recognize, our friend Gary Gersel the historian, and he was a former guest on this show, right? It was a great conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'll go out on a limb here and guess that it was kind of probably something to do with neoliberalism. Bingo. Hey. As you would say, Michael, bingo. Yes. Um, so we had this great conversation about neoliberalism. The event was actually part of a history conference organized by Noam Magor at the Paris Institute for Advanced Studies. We'll get to that in just a second. But what was super cool was that afterward... I pulled Tomas aside. He was actually being mobbed by a bunch of fans, but we had a little room set aside with a single mic. And I really got to talk to him about whether neoliberalism was going to continue when, in fact, the data shows how much it hurts all of us, hurts democracy, hurts freedom. So what were we going to do about that? That's what he and I got to talk about. But let's start by listening to a few excerpts from this conversation at the Paris Institute for Advanced Studies. Here's Noam Agor. Terrific. Specifically, this conversation will try to assess whether indeed the neoliberal era is coming or has already in some ways come to a close and whether we are indeed moving to a new approach to governance that embraces a more active role for government. Are we indeed at the forefront of something new? And if yes, what are the implications? for us as citizens, as progressive people, and of course, as researchers in the humanities and social sciences. A worthy panel topic. So what was the verdict? Well, you know, actually, there was some disagreement. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play some excerpts from our panel optimists, Professor Gersel. And I think you'll hear in this clip that Gary really sees President Biden and the Biden administration as the bellwether for our moment. And he really makes the argument that President Biden has taken progressive ideas so seriously during his tenure that, in fact, neoliberalism is ending. I think that what I call the neoliberal order has fractured and it's opened up possibilities for politics that had not existed previously. I want to make the case for the possibilities of this moment. In numerous places, thinkers, politicians, social movements are calling for government to intervene in capitalist processes of investment, manufacture, and labor to the point where the entire system can be harnessed to serve the public interest. This was the core belief of Roosevelt's New Deal. It has now reawakened. This reawakening is evident in the degree to which Biden has, himself has moved left on these matters. It is evident in the presence with his, within his administration of a significant group of progressives, even leftists, who have been given important portfolios. It is evident in the stunning speech that Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, gave a month ago to the Brookings Inst Institution 
the week that the IMF was meeting in Washington, essentially declaring that America would not be secure until livelihoods of millions of Americans was secured through domestic government action. Yeah, I mostly agree with Gary. I I look at it in historical terms kind of like this. The Clinton and Obama administrations weren't as aggressive on these fronts as people like us would like, but that was in no small part because there was no real consensus on the broad left along these lines and about these issues. That consensus has been forming in the academy and the activist world over the last decade, which is what we talk about on this show. And Biden carried that consensus into his administration to a surprising extent. We still saw the fault lines where that consensus doesn't exist, Joe Manchin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think Biden deserves uh, most all of the credit that Gary discusses. Yeah, I definitely agreed with Gary there, but I also came in a little bit more pessimistic than him for a pretty basic reason. I definitely think the ideas and the policy design has moved away from neoliberalism, but we're still working within government structures, government systems that are definitely neoliberal. So that's the tension. Here's what I said on the panel about that. The Inflation Reduction Act is a striking piece of legislation. The early estimates were going to be that about $400 billion of government money in the form of tax credits was going to go to green industry. Actually, the estimates now are closer to $1.2 trillion because many of these tax credits were uncapped. And many companies who have many good lobbyists, by the way, rushed to take advantage of the tax credits. It's an enormous change because we move from pricing carbon, a kind of sticks model, which economists love and regular people don't love. We moved to, from that to a subsidies model or a carrots model, right? Where we're rewarding people who invest and companies who invest in decarbonization. So this is just absolutely profound. But what I really worry about is that all of the beneficiaries of all of this decarbonization money will end up being highly concentrated firms, big solar, governed by and for asset managers, These are the kinds of people who understand how to take advantage of very complicated tax credits. Yeah, there are obviously a lot of unanswered questions out there. Exactly. We're still in the middle of the story. Yep. So now here's what Tomas said on the panel. So we are moving from uh, more optimistic to less to less. You know, look, I know I, I don't want to be playing this role, but at the same time, you know, uh, Okay, certainly we, we have, we have started to get out of the era of sort of euphoric, uh, euph- neoliberal euphoria, euphoria or whatever. But w- whether we are really uh, out of neoliberalism at this stage, I think is really very much an open question. So his argument is that what feels like the end of neoliberalism, like maybe this is just kind of an illusion, kind of a mirage. And I think especially he feels that way because he thinks we haven't gotten to the heart of neoliberalism, which is concentrated wealth. We haven't really tackled that yet. No, we haven't, but we've started. And I do agree with him that the death of neoliberalism, the announced death of neoliberalism is premature. You've heard me say this many times. I think the extent to which Trumpism allegedly represents some rejection of neoliberalism is vastly overstated by people on our side. So I think that we're in no way out of those woods. But I do think that a consensus is really forming among American progressives for a new path. 
I also want to play two of Tomas's larger points from the panel. One of them was about industrial policy. And really, he asked, are the numbers big enough? What's going on in terms of industrial policy is important, certainly, you know, with the Biden administration. There are two problems to me. You know, first, when you dig a little more, what you find is the biggest amount were really for the pandemic uh, exceptional uh, policy measures, which are already over. If you look at like the, the, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, the 400 billion initial plan, you know, in fact, 400 billion, you know, it's, this is a 2% of US GDP that you spend over five or 10 years. This is in fact extremely small. This has nothing to do with the kind of expansion of the state that you have uh, during the New Deal. We, we are, yeah, we are talking about something very small. And even if you get to 1.2 trillion, you have to see over how many years you spend it. The second problem, to me, is even worse, is that in fact, we're talking about uh, uh, tax credit, private subsidies to, to private capital accumulation. And, you know, this could just be the continuation of tax competition in a more extreme way. You know, and, and for this, you know, I want to insist that if anything, tax competition since the 2008 financial crisis has become even bigger. And then later in his talk, he really kind of went where you had been a little bit before, Michael, this question of, are we really going to change the tax code the way we need to, to fix American inequality and tackle wealth? I think if we want to reduce inequality in America or across the world, and if we really want to get out of the neoliberal political order in the U.S., this will have to involve an enormous return of progressive taxation. After 2008 financial crisis, this has become a topic of discussion. Sanders and Warren, well, especially Sanders, but Warren was sort of following Sanders on this, were advocating not only for a return of top income tax rate and top inheritance tax rate of, you know, 70, 80% like those that were implemented under uh, Roosevelt, which I think were a huge success historically. And I think it's time to reassess this period. You know, I think on average between 1930 and 1980, the top income tax rate in the U.S. was 81% at the federal level. And, and you know, apparently it did not destroy uh, U.S. capitalism. Otherwise, we would have noticed it. But even more than that, you know, this was the period of maximum U.S. prosperity. If you look at U.S. productivity in the post-war decade as compared to the rest of the world, this was the maximum gap ever. The key to prosperity is much more uh, uh, investment in education, human capital, public infrastructure. Well, that's certainly interesting. Uh, and I'm guessing you talked a lot about taxes in your one-on-one -on -one conversation as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. He kept coming back to it. So now that our listeners have gotten a little bit of the highlight reel from our hour and a half long panel conversation, let's go ahead and play my one-on-one -on -one conversation with Tomas. Tomas, thank you very much for joining us on How to Save a Country. We just had a very long and spirited conversation about the future of the American economy, the future of the world economy. And one of the things we talked about a lot is taxation, the importance of taxation, the importance of higher taxation, the importance of wealth taxation. And I'd love your thinking on where the United States in particular needs to go next on taxation and why we haven't seen more progress on that in the last five years. You know, I think the Democrats have, have given up somehow on the battle on progressive taxation after the Reagan decade and, and you know, starting with Clinton. 
And I think, you know, we're still not completely out of this era. You know, we have to remember that Biden was already, of course, a lawmaker in the 1980s and even in the 1970s. And he actually voted the 1986 Tax Reform Act, which was the chief act in order, you know, to demolish a tax progressivity in the U.S. with a top tax rate of 28% as opposed to over 80% on average between 1930 and 1980. And, you know, I don't think Biden really... Um, uh, has ever expressed regret for that. And I think, you know, the general doctrine of the Democratic Party, at least of the most sort of centrist part of the Democratic Party, has not really changed. So it, the doctrine has started to change for the more left part of the Democratic Party. And we've seen with Sanders and Warren in, in 2016 and 2020, some, you know, ambitious proposal to sort of restart, you know, the, the progressive tax agenda. Uh, uh, of uh, you know, Roosevelt and of the New Deal and to add a progressive wealth tax to the progressive can income you, tax. Can you explain for our listeners why a wealth tax is important in addition to an income tax? Generally speaking, we have, you know, collectively in the US and in Europe, we have managed to reduce somewhat the inequality of income throughout the 20th century. But as far as the inequality of wealth is concerned, we still have enormous concentration of wealth. So that's a simple answer. So why we need a wealth tax, which is that if you only have an income tax, you can redistribute income to some extent. But if you don't have a wealth tax, you cannot think of redistributing wealth. Now, at a more technical level, you can also say that, you know, the problem with an income tax is that when you're very wealthy, your income is very often a ridiculously small fraction of your true economic income and of your true wealth. You can increase the tax rate on income as much as you want, but if the tax base itself is a ridiculously small fraction of the wealth, that's not going to work. And only a wealth tax can change this. Even if, if there was no technical problem of sort of manipulating income uh, from economic income to fiscal income, there would still be a rational for wealth tax simply because, you know, if you want to redistribute wealth itself and not only the flow of income, then you, you cannot do it just with an income tax. So you can do it a little bit with an inheritance tax, but that's not enough. You know, you cannot wait. If you think of uh, billionaires today, you know, who have, who have accumulated 200 billions at age 40, you know, you're not going to wait. Sure, it used to be that $30 billion was a lot of money and now it it's not the top. Right. Exactly. So the, the trend, you know, has continued over the past 10 years. And, I, you know, I think that's very important because sometimes people say, you know, since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, things have really changed. You know, we've started to fight against uh, tax havens. We, we've realized, you know, the excesses of uh, neoliberalism. Intellectually, it, we have, it, yes. Intellectually, we have. And it is true that if you look at the, at the long-run trends in inequality, we have a sort of high inequality plateau since 2008. So you don't go up as fast as you, as you, as we did in the 1990s to an early 2000. But there's no decline. And at the very, very top, including for billionaires, you have actually an, an exacerbation of the upward trend. And, you know, I think the very, very top is important because we can see the influence it has on our uh, political system, on the media system. So, you know, typical example is uh, Elon Musk with, with Twitter. So when the top billionaires had, had 30 uh, billion dollars or 40 billion dollars, like was the case around 2008, you know, you cannot buy a 40 billion dollar toy. Uh, it makes a difference to have a world with billionaires with 200, 230. And, and when billionaires get to 500 or 1,000, which is, you know, the trend we're getting at 
it makes an, an even bigger, an even bigger difference. And then you will privatize, uh, you know, your uh, your space policy and you know your your military policy. You know, you can privatize everything. There's no limit. I've heard you say that the good news is that the wealthy are very wealthy because if we could find a tax system that was able to tax away wealth. We actually have plenty of money to pay for the things that you want and that I want, education, healthcare. So is there a world, and if we could get the politics right, is it possible to say that this level of wealth is good news because we actually have the amount of money that we need to pay for the things that people need? Well, what would be great is to have the same level of, of wealth, but with a better distribution. You know, the, the big problem is that if you look at the bottom 50% of the population, right now in a country like the US, they own a, a two or three percent of national wealth, which for 50% of the population is, is very small. In Europe, it's supposed to be more egalitarian. Okay, the bottom 50% would own, you know, four or five percent of total wealth. That's more than in the 19th century where it was 2%. But, you know, we are talking about half of the population or actually two thirds of the population would almost don't, don't own anything, which I think is not only unfair mm. for all these children who are born in families where, you know, you cannot inherit anything, you have, but it's also inefficient because it means that you have very weak uh, bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis your own life and vis-a-vis -vis the rest of society. When you only have debt, you know, you have to accept whatever job, whatever wage you are being proposed, you, you, you know, and if you have just, you know, 100, 200, 300,000 dollars, you know, this may seem ridiculously small for billionaires or multimillionaires, but in fact, it makes a big difference because then you can buy your home in many parts of America or Europe, then you don't have to get a rent each month. You can start a small business. You can say no to certain jobs because you can wait a little bit. So it makes a big difference in terms of bargaining power. And in, in the 20th century, the fact that the middle 40%, you know, between the bottom 50 and the top 10 have actually increased their wealth share. So there has been some progress in the long run. Things have been moving in the right direction, but insufficiently so. You're talking about the ways in which that kind of taxation system, which led to a different kind of inheritance for many people, actually ended up growing a middle class in the United States and to some degree in Europe. But I want you to explain this question of inheritance more for our listeners, because you've said that in addition to needing higher income taxation and very significant wealth taxation at, let's say, 5%, uh, 5% annually, isn't that right? On wealth stock, on yeah, wealth. five, ten percent okay. on, on billionaires. Yes. So, in addition to that, you also say that part of what you should do with that money is actually to help young people, all young people, inherit something more when they explain the inheritance idea more for us. What I proposed was at age 25, you inherit the equivalent of 60% of average wealth. You know, if average wealth is $250,000 per adult or $300,000 per adult, you will get maybe one hundred fifty or one hundred eighty. dollars $180,000 when you turn 25. And, you know, in other countries, you would have to adjust to the average wealth in the, in the country. But, you know, the idea is that everybody, including people in the bottom 50%, should have at least some wealth so that they can make plans. Let me be very clear about the fact that historically, all the progress that have been made toward more equality and more prosperity first came from the rise of the 
social state, which some people call the welfare state. I prefer to call it the social state because it includes education, mm -hmm. public infrastructure. So it's not just welfare. And, and this big rise in public educational investment, public health investment, public infrastructure investment is really the key for both prosperity and equality. Elementary education and higher education? From elementary to higher education. I think one of the big reasons for uh, uh, the stagnation of productivity uh, in recent decades has been actually the stagnation of total educational investment. So just to get the orders of magnitude, Until World War One and in the 19th century, the U.S. or European countries were spending less than 1% of their national income, or even in Europe, it was less than 0.5% of national income. The U.S. were in advance. They had twice as much, almost 1% of national income, but still, it was very small. This has risen to about... On education. On education. Okay. Public investment in education. It means if you pay your teachers the average wealth, you can have 1% of the population who teaches the rest of the population. Now, this has increased to 5-6% of national income uh, uh, in the, by the 1980s, 1990s, which means you can hire you know, 5 or 6% of the population at equivalent average wage to teach the rest of the population. So this makes a lot more teachers and, uh, and you can bring people, everybody, not only to primary, but also to secondary, some of them to higher education. But then this has stagnated at this level, mm. uh, five, six percent of national income since the 1980s, 1990s, both in the US and, 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 and in, uh, in Europe. That's largely due to this sort of neoliberal retreat, which has sort of decided to stabilize the total level of, of tax revenue. Right. So if you stabilize the total level of tax revenue and, and you have an increase in health spending, pension spending because of aging, you have to cut on something else. So sometimes there were actually some cuts on education or stagnation, plus an increase in public debt, which at some point you have to deal with. That's not good for equality. That's not good for productivity. So let me make clear that this was the key policy You know, the, in the past, to get more equality, more prosperity, this is going to be the, the key policy in the future. So the redistribution of inheritance should not come instead of that. It, it should works. come in addition to that. And if you want an order of priority, you know, you first need to make sure your education policy, your health policy, your public infrastructure, and also your basic income where you can have a, a, a basic income, you know, very small, typically around 50, 60% of full-time minimum wage. With this, you're not going to go very far, but at least, you know, that's a basic safety net, which... You can walk away from a bad job, perhaps with that for a little while. You would have more if you had inheritance, yeah, but that's part of your argument, right? Yeah, exactly, but that's not enough. But but you can see that in the US already, you don't have this. So, so no, we don't. And, 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 the, and the public education, public health, public infrastructure is, is vastly insufficient. So let me make clear that this is really the first priority. Now, after you, you have this, Then, indeed, the redistribution of inheritance with a kind of minimum inheritance for all, to me, is the, is the, is the next step. So, again, I'm not saying this is going to happen next week, but I think it's important that progressive, uh, you know, start thinking again, mm. not only about next week, but also about next decade and next century. And, you know, if, if you look at the system uh, uh, that we have today with a you know, total level of tax revenue, uh, uh, anywhere between 30% of national income in the U.S. to 40-50% of national income in Europe. Uh, before World War I, it was less than 10% of national income everywhere. If you had told, uh, you know, economists at the time, or many uh, journalists at the time, uh, economic elite or political elite, you know, you were going to jump to 30-50% of national income in tax revenue, they would have told you, oh, but, you know, that's, co that's communism, you're going to ruin the economy. Well, in fact, this was the largest 
experience of growth in history. Yes. And this came together. This is because you had this investment in education, health infrastructure, that you had at the same time more equality or more prosperity. So when we look at the next century, you know, we, I think we have to think of a, of a transformation of similar magnitude. Uh, you know, I think one of the mistakes is that starting in the 80s, 90s, you know, the progressives have, have started to think like the neoliberals, which is we have to stop everything. You know, the sort of the social democratic institution are now uh, perfect. You know, they should be frozen. Do you see that in France as well? If you take this simple indicator, which is, you know, tax revenue as a function of national income, you have a stabilization around 30% of national income in the US and a stabilization around 45% of national income in Europe. But you, you, so you have a bigger social state in, in Europe, that's for sure. But, you know, the, the, you have the stabilization in, on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, basically for the same sort of ideological reason, which starting in the 1980s, 1990s, you, you have, a, 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 you know, the rise of some form of a neoliberal discourse basically saying, uh, okay, we have to stop there. We are not going to return to the situation before World War One, but this stabilization already, I think, is a, is, a, is a threat for the future because in a context with aging, mm -hmm. with rising health expenditures, uh, you know, if you, if you stabilize the, the total tax revenue, you know, this can seem like a good common sense idea. And, you know, maybe I have contributed to repeat this idea, but in fact, the more I think about it and, the more I can see that this is not going to work because then it means you will have more and more private financing of typically health and education, which is going to lead to a lot of inequality and also to a lot of inefficiency. Because, you know, when you, you spend all, today, it's almost 20% of GDP for health, you know, in the, in the US, I think. 18, and terrible 18, 19, outcomes. And terrible health People outcomes. People are sick. I want to turn now to ask you about the role of the United States and Europe in a changing global economy. Certainly the combination of some of the reshoring of jobs that you've seen in the United States, some of the reaction that you've seen in Europe to that, which I do believe um, ultimately there is going to be some kind of rapprochement, I hope so, between the United States and Europe on questions of whether or not we can work together on public investment towards decarbonization. What do you see, however, as the role of the United States and Europe in a new global economy? What about the global South? What about China? Do you see a new structure? That would be good. Do you see a new good, a positive structure? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think the pressure coming from the South and the pressure coming from the environmental catastrophe is going to pick up so enormous at the North. And, you know, in the North, we have the US, we have Western Europe, but we have also Russia and China, which in mm -hmm. many ways, not only geographically, are part of the North. So I see, you know, growing pressure uh, from the South and from environmental catastrophe, which will also eat uh, mm -hmm. the, the North, but which will eat even more the South. This pressure at some point, I think, I hope, but also I think, is going to change attitudes towards the economic system tremendously. So I think at some point when people see... The More negative. Well, I think people will, will ask for change. They will ask for economic change. So I think they will ask in the end for positive economic change in the sense that they will not tolerate 
extreme inequality anymore. They will have a hard time, you know, to tolerate, you know, all these people giving lessons about climate change and, you know, taking their private jet or going, uh, right. going space tourism and this kind of stuff, crazy things. You know, I, I think people will not find this funny anymore uh, uh, very soon, you know, when this is the magnitude of the, of the environmental catastrophe. So I think this pressure is going to, to play a role. I would hope you know, that we have the right reaction, which is basically... We, in the United States and Europe, yeah, what would the right reaction be? Well, the right reaction would be that, you know, we cannot just make promise about reparation. In the Paris summit in 2015, you know, of course, the, the, the North uh, said, OK, we are going to give you 100 billion a year, whatever, you know, that which was ridiculously insufficient as compared to the needs, but which the North did not even provide. Uh, now you ask them, oh, you should help me with Russia, with, uh, with, with China. There's just too much hypocrisy. So what's the solution? The solution to me, you know, good news is that we have started a little bit to talk about structural transformation of the international economic system, particularly the international tax system with minimum tax on corporations. The big problem is that so far it's been a North mm -hmm. uh, game. So basically, you try to take some of the tax base that's in tax seven and you split it between uh, European Union coffers and, and US coffers and the South is getting like less than 1% of the extra gain. And, and, and China is offering investment for infrastructure, it, which it, has national security and other international security implications. So the optimistic view is that, you know, this geopolitical competition with uh, China and Russia is going to force the U.S. and Europe to offer something better to the South. Could be, you know, an international tax system such that the largest economic actors, both multinationals and billionaires, pay a meaningful minimum tax on their profits and their wealth, and that a meaningful share of the tax revenue is split, uh, you know, between all countries uh, in the world according to population. I just want to ask you one last question, Hamas. What is the one thing you really wish Americans would do? Could be the American government, could be the American people. But what do you wish Americans would do to make our whole planet better? Well, the first thing you could, Americans could do is to, you know, mobilize and 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 elect uh, someone like uh, like Bernie Sanders. You know, maybe a sort of younger Bernie Sanders, a bit less white, a bit less male. That would be fantastic. But in the end, the most important thing is, you know, someone with a message. Uh, that that in the end goes to the root, I think, of American exceptionalism and 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 the true source of U.S. prosperity. You know, historically has not been inequality; has been education and a relatively more inclusive educational system and social fabric as compared to all European societies of the of the of the nineteenth century. Things now have flipped around the other way. And you know, the US look a little bit like old Europe of 1913 in some ways. But you know, there is some egalitarian and democratic uh, tradition in the United States, which you know I think could rebound in the in the future. Tomas Piketty, thank you so much for joining us on how to save a country, maybe how to save a planet. I certainly hope you are correct. Thanks a lot, Patricia. Well, that was super interesting. So, Felicia, let's see. What are my reactions? Uh, number one, why did you get to go to Paris and not me? I really did get lucky. Lots <laughs> of lattes, very delicious cheese plates. It was it was kind of all you could have expected, Michael, really. Yeah, yeah. I got invited. I actually got invited to give a talk in Paris. 
10 years ago, but I guess, you know, it's it, it, the next one might be five years from now. So I get it every 15 years or something. Anyway, good for you. I'm glad you enjoyed Paris. It was actually really great. It's uh, something. But to his words, well, here's one reaction. Most of what he said was very data-driven and policy-specific. Not much of what he said was strategic or political. So when I listen to presentations like that, even when they're by really obviously brilliant people, and I agree with most of what's being said, which I did, I can't help but sort of make political calculations in my head. The one thing he said that I thought was a really interesting piece of political rhetoric that a lot of politicians don't use is this point he made several times to you about how, look, look at the 30s, the 40s through the 70s. Tax rates were through the roof, through the roof, 80%. Unionization, 90, even. 90 sometimes. Unionization was really high. Regulations were great. Oh, you know, all these things. And yet it was the greatest period of prosperity in human history. The French have a phrase for it, which you know, the Trente Glorieuse, the 30 glorious years. You should have gone to Paris uh, instead of me, well, Michael, with that accent. <laughs> I, I can fake, I, où sont les bains? You know, I can fake a few things. You know, that is something that, that progressive politicians ought to make conservatives refute. How do you refute the fact? That, you know, as Tomas said many times, we had really high tax rates and all these other things and the period of greatest growth in the history of the world. Yeah, I think it's an important point. I think more politicians should say it more regularly. And at the same time, I do think he did give some political advice to us Americans. He basically said, (laughs) you know. Elect younger, less male, (laughs) less white Bernie Sanders. So like that is a very concrete piece of advice that he had. I'm just saying he didn't, he wasn't only in the data. (laughs) Anyway, so when I really reflect on my conversation with Tomas, it is so striking just how far the conversation has come over the last 10 years since he published Capital in the 21st Century, right? I mean, In 2014, when I read that book and I said he wants wealth taxation on this kind of global level, I mean, I thought it was brilliant, but I thought it really was sort of pie in the sky. And then, of course, the idea of inheritance redistribution, which he also talked a lot about, that also would have seemed nuts a decade ago. But now look. We see baby bonds, which is essentially a kind of investment in inheritance for all young people. We see baby bonds as part of pretty close to the mainstream Democratic Party platform. And certainly we see wealth taxation as part of the almost mainstream Democratic Party platform. You know, we're not there yet, but we are really, really, really close. The one thing that I'm of two minds on is the question of a wealth tax. I, I did a lot of reading about it during the 2020 campaign and while it was being debated. I'd love to see there be some way to get at that wealth. There are questions about its constitutionality to me that seemed kind of real. So I'm not sure uh, how soon that something like that can happen in the United States, to be honest. Inheritance tax is a totally different question. And again, to return to certain of our politicians who leave certain arguments sitting on the floor that they ought to be using. Adam Smith was in favor of a high inheritance tax. Adam Smith, the god of free market economics. Yes, yes, I know. Well, 
my colleagues at the Roosevelt Institute actually have written about ways in which a wealth tax could be practical to administer and could be constitutional. So that is a debate we're still going to have to have in the future, Michael. I read some of those. Just persuasive, persuasive. I just don't know where I come down. But anyway. Moving that that Overton window, one one journalist at a time, Michael. That's my job. (laughs) Fair enough. But anyway, you know, he makes a lot of strong points that are working their way into the bloodstream of the American political economy, let's say. That is right. So, Michael. Yes. What's the good word, my friend? Well, let's see. This certain guy was indicted. That was kind of interesting. But let me go pivot in another direction. How about the Supreme Court's recent Voting Rights Act decision? Really surprising, I mean, Michael. That was really stunning that they upheld portions of the Voting Rights Act five to four with John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh siding with the three liberals. Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I just never would have guessed. What was really remarkable about that decision, right, is that the Supreme Court decided that packing Black voters into a single district in the state of Alabama was discriminatory and therefore unconstitutional. And I just really hope that we'll be able to see more and more cases brought now that that decision has been made. I hope so. I mean, it could change the congressional maps in not just Alabama, but in other states that are covered by the Voting Rights Act. And so the consequences are pretty far reaching. And, you know, I'm happy that they did it, but I totally, totally don't understand it. You mean you don't understand how we saw a 5-4 vote? It has nothing to do with John Roberts's history of jurisprudence on this issue. I mean, nothing. It's just hmm. a total sop to uh, people who his, and his concern about the court's reputation, uh, seemingly. I, I don't, hmm. It makes no sense. He's been really bad on race, on, on voting rights questions, on school segregation issues throughout his tenure, throughout. He's been okay on certain things, but not that. It's really weird, but I'll take it. Maybe <laughs> institutionalism can actually bring a level of clarity and rationality to our Supreme Court. Yeah, let's not get carried away, but... Okay, I was going to say, that's definitely glass half full. (laughs) Speaking about the history of the American South, we are going to be talking to Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Jefferson Cowie. Oh, boy. Next week. Wowie. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Anyway, our conversation with Jeff is really going to be terrific because he's going to talk about the long history of freedom and the long history of a kind of dark side of freedom in American politics. Yeah, there are two standard definitions or types of freedom and liberty. There's negative liberty, which is like, leave me alone, don't tread on me, which the American right favors today. And then there's positive liberty or positive freedom in which an actor, usually the state, takes actions to facilitate and expand freedom. Jeff, if I may, added a third type of freedom, which is a really scary, creepy type of freedom, which you're going to have to tune in to hear it defined. Going all the way back to Athenian democracy is the freedom to enslave, the freedom to oppress, the freedom to dominate. And he says that that kind of freedom is deeply, profoundly part of the Western tradition. How to Save a Country is a production of PRX in partnership with the Roosevelt Institute and the New Republic. Our script editor is Christina Stella. Our producer is Marcelo Jauregui-Volpe. 
Our lead producer is Ali Rogers. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And our mix engineer is Pedro Rafael Rosado. Our theme music is courtesy of Cody Randall and Epidemic Sound, with other music provided by APM. How to Save a Country is made possible with support from the Omidyar Network, a social change venture that's reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Support also comes from the Hewlett Foundation's Economy and Society Initiative, working to foster the development of a new common sense about how economics works and the aims it should serve. 